Good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us this morning as we begin a new study on a new book of the Old Testament, looking at the minor prophet Hosea. So much has been shared this morning, uh, and it's been a wonderful service. I will attempt to be brief this morning as we intro this new study, this new book, this new prophet, and some new revelation for us about the depth and the beauty of God's love for us. As we're looking at Hosea, we've been spending most of this fall already in Amos, and we've looked at a lot of minor prophets. We've talked about some Old Testament geography of where they are and how it works. I thought it might be helpful this morning as we move from Amos into Hosea to actually look at a couple maps of what we're talking about so you can better understand. And if you're a little worried of uh, maps, this is going to feel too academic. Or I did workshop this with a group of young ministers, and I said, is showing maps on a Sunday too boring? And it came back a vote of 14 to 1, no, okay? So if you're bored when I show these maps, you're wrong, okay? It is very cool, and that is what they told me. Can you throw up the first map up there of the 12 tribes? Yeah, this is Israel around the time of the Minor Prophets. Um, you can see it's 12 different kingdoms all spread out. You can see the kingdom of Israel up top there. And you may say, I thought it all was Israel. After the split of Israel following King Solomon's death, it divides. And we have the kingdom of Judah in the south. And we have Israel in the north. And you see Edom is referenced. And that's not that important to what we'll study. Um, the kingdom of Israel up there, as we go into Hosea, one important thing to understand is that the prophet Hosea refers to the northern kingdom of Israel as Ephraim. And so it kind of can be confusing. What's Ephraim? When he says that, he means the northern kingdom of Israel. That is the tribe uh, that represents northern kingdom of Israel. All right, show the next slide. Okay, this may be even more confusing, but it's important, I think, to understand. The dark green that you can see up there is a kingdom called Assyria. Assyria is what destroys northern Israel eventually. And you can see in the dark green, that is the Assyrian Empire around the uh, 7th century, around 824 BC. You can see them kind of, they're coming for Israel. Israel is right over there uh, to the left right by the sea, uh, Mediterranean Sea. And you can see it's kind of bearing down onto northern Israel. It's looming. Then you can see the large part of the more lime green is the Assyrian Empire in 671. And what you can tell there is northern Israel, gone, absorbed by the Assyrian kingdom. And important but not relevant to this teaching series is that tiny little yellow dot of Judah that God miraculously saves from the imposing kingdom of Assyria. So as we talk about these prophets, it's important to understand sometimes the, the history of where we are in talking about it and what is happening. You can situate yourself a little bit there. You can go back to the main slides here. As we look at Hosea, there's a couple things that are important about this prophet. He is prophesying to the northern kingdom, the same one that Amos prophesied to. Hosea is the last prophet to speak to the northern kingdom before it is destroyed. So he's the last voice advocating and speaking to them. Hosea is a difficult Old Testament book. It is difficult to translate. 
He uses this northern Israel version of Hebrew that's poetic and kind of weird and hard to translate. He also is considered one of the greatest prophetic, I mean, uh, poetic writers of the Old Testament, right up there with Job and Song of Song, the poetry he uses. The problem for us is it's a very specific Hebrew poetic language that just doesn't translate very well into English. So you may read it and you won't pick up on that. What you will pick up on as we read Hosea is that the overriding metaphor of this book is around marriage. Hosea, uniquely, God gives him a challenge and a call to live out his prophetic word in his life as a metaphor. God says, I see Israel as my bride that I have married, but she is a bride that is unfaithful. So Hosea, what I want you to do is marry an unfaithful woman and experience that yourself. And out of that experience, you'll be able to better represent how I feel. As we do that, though, Hosea is not a book to learn marital lessons from. Although you could, that is not its primary purpose. It is about God's love for his people. And to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is for his people. The bridegroom and marital covenant is the dominant metaphor throughout this letter. Growing up, I had the, the privilege and the benefit to watch my parents and their marriage, and they're still married. We just celebrated last year their 50th wedding anniversary, so they've been married a long time. I also am the third of the children they've had, and I'm kind of the surprise child of the family that we have. So as I grew up, my parents were already older and had been married for a while, and they were uh, in their 30s, which is weird to say. I think I'm older than they were when they had me, so that's my own issues I have to work through. But in watching them, it means I grew up not in the phase of their life where it was like young and romantic and all of these, you know, bustling aspects of love and marriage, I grew up watching them in the mid to later stages of their marriage where it was a life shared together, of commitment together, of obedience walking a journey together. And I don't have very many memories of them doing overly romantic things, although at five I remember walking into the kitchen and them kissing, and I've had to process that through my own therapy of what that felt like. But what I saw was both of my parents take care of each other's parents in their later stages of life. Them either living with and loving and caring for the other's parents in a way that they felt called to do as an expression of their sacrificial love. I watched them then work together and live together for 20 years. And I would say sometimes, what do you talk about at night? Like, haven't you just, it's all you were there for all of it? What do you even say at that point? I watched them share, commit, and sacrifice for each other. That's the dominant theme of marriage for my parents that I have watched and seen. As we look at Hosea, and as we study this prophetic writing, we see God's expression that his love is committed, sacrificial love that time and time again picks back up where we have failed, where we are weak, where we stumble. At the end of the letter, Hosea kind of gives an overview of what he wants us to do with this letter. We find it in Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Hosea writes, Let those who are wise understand these things. Let those with discernment listen carefully. The paths of the Lord are true and right. 
and righteous people live by walking in them. But in those paths, sinners stumble and fall. In this, you can almost feel some of the wisdom and poetic literature at the end of this letter. You might recognize, if you're a a devotee of the Old Testament, his language feels similar to something like Psalm 1, where it's not walking in the ways of sinners, but it is a tree planted by living waters is a righteous person. Or Proverbs 18.10, that the way of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it. They're saved. Or even New Testament, Matthew 7, as Jesus talks about the wise or foolish builders. A wise person builds his house on the rock of God's word and law. Hosea, while we see a lot about marriage, is a book about principles for life that we can build on to build a steady and faithful life. Though the mechanism is a dysfunctional marriage. Hosea is a prophetic teaching that God's unfailing love needs to be experienced to be known. It's not enough to study it, to think about it, but his love is meant to be experiential in our lives. It's messy. It requires vulnerability, sacrifice, and risk, but that the creator God of the universe genuinely loves us, and Hosea demonstrates how much he loves us and invites us to lean in to that loving relationship. Let's look at Hosea chapter 1. We'll see the introduction to who he is in Hosea 1, 1 through 3. The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Barai, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. And Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. She became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. Now that is the most I have said the word prostitute on a Sunday sermon so far, and we're just beginning into the letter of Hosea. It is a shocking beginning to this prophetic work. It's a prophetic work, so mostly it's Hosea speaking on behalf of God, what God has put in his heart. But the first three chapters really hit you hard at the narrative portion of what God asks Hosea to do. He says, Hosea, before you begin prophesying for me, I want you to go marry someone who will be unfaithful to you. And when they are unfaithful to you, I want you to continually keep going back, showing grace, showing mercy, showing love. And I want you to experience this. For Hosea, it's not just even an intellectual thing he has to go through. God says, bear children with this woman. It's not just an experience. It is in you and who you are. Your children will be her children. Your children, some of them you will raise, will not even be your own because that's how painful this process will be to you. As you read the letter, Hosea gives names to his children which are incredibly depressing and painful. I sometimes think about what the life of those people would have been like for his children given these names. His first child's name is Jezreel, which means you reap what you sow. 
You reap bad things, you sow bad things. Imagine in middle school and they're calling out, hey, uh, you reap what you sow. Are you in class? And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm here. That's me. Sorry, everybody. The second child, worse. It gets worse in their naming. Lo Rahuam, not loved. That is the name of the second child that is also a woman. Your name is not loved. That's who you are. The third child, even worse, lo ami, not my people. Not mine. That's the name of the third child. Also, most scholars believe that this third child was not Hosea's child, was born from infidelity of his wife, Gomer. Now, as we look at the book of Hosea, I want us to see three themes, and I borrowed these theme from a spiritual friend of ours, Tim Keller, who I thought said it really well, that there are three themes that we see in the book of Hosea. First, we see that the relationship with God is like a marriage. Second, we see that our relationship with God is like a bad marriage. And then third, what it costs God to heal this broken relationship between he and us. Let's first look at it as a marriage. The relationship with God is like a marriage. We'll look at Hosea chapter 3. Some scholars say that Hosea chapter 3 may be the best chapter in all of the Old Testament. There's a lot of great chapters in there. You may think of Psalm 23, or you may think of Genesis 1. There's a lot of beauty in there. Some say Hosea 3, the lesser-known chapter in a lesser-known prophet, in a lesser-known section of the Bible, is the most powerful chapter in all of the Old Testament. Let's look at why. Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, to Hosea, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Marriage is a key biblical theme running from Genesis to Revelation. It's one of the what we call meta themes of the Bible is marriage between God and his people. Jeremiah uses this language in Jeremiah 2, 3, and 4. Isaiah uses this metaphor frequently throughout the entire of his long prophetic work. Ezekiel 16 powerfully uses this metaphor. Ephesians 5, Paul uses this metaphor as the bride of Christ and Christ the bridegroom. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul uses this metaphor again of Christ the bridegroom, his church, the bride. God's relationship with humanity as a marriage is one of the dominant themes of the Bible. And what the argument may be is that we cannot understand our relationship with God strictly through some of the other metaphors we may prefer. God as a king ruling his subjects. Yes, that's a biblical metaphor, but maybe it's not enough to be loyal to a king. Or God as shepherd leading his sheep, guiding us and leading us. Also biblical, but maybe not enough or even a father raising his children, another biblical metaphor, but not complete, without the metaphor of God's relationship to his people as a marriage. Because a marriage means that his desire for us is intensely intimate and binding, that it's something he chose to enter into with his creation. 
And in that relationship is the exposure and intimacy of you knowing all of me and me knowing all of you. Isaiah 54 says it like this. For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you back from your grief as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband. It says, your God, don't be afraid. Your maker is your husband. When we see this, we can see perhaps why God chooses this. And Tim Keller says marriage has three components to it that maybe are why God has chosen this as a powerful metaphor. Marriage involves priority, intimacy, and life-changing potency. Priority. Any person teaching about priorities of life and how to structure it, they will say your marriage relationship, including if you are single, including if your spouse has passed on, including if you are in a marriage in this moment, that that aspect of your life is your main priority. The relationship with your spouse, the relationship with the person God's given you, or relationship in your singleness is your first priority of life, who you are relationally and in a covenant bond of sacrificial love. That is your first priority. Marriage in a human relationship is one that sets your whole life as a whole. And what God says is, as a marital relationship, I am not an added feature to your life. I am your first priority. I am where your strength comes from. I am the priority of your worship and your love. I am not a life hack, a side hustle, or a vitamin supplement that increases the potency of your life. I am the first priority. I want you to know me. To know me as your first and most important priority of your life. That when God uses the metaphor of marriage, he says, I want us to work on this primarily and first. Before you call that person when you are stressed, before you send the text, before you begin your mantra or whatever it is you do to decompress, come to me and let us work on this relationship together. I want to be your number one priority. Number two in marriage is intimacy. When I'm giving marital counsel, I usually say when we talk about bank accounts, and this can be just a, a side information in your marriage or in your life, there should never be separate bank accounts inside of a marriage. You know all of it. You make one, or at least you have access to both of them, and you see all of it. And sometimes people will say, well, shouldn't we have boundaries? And then like, they see you naked, your whole body. They see all of this. It is exposed. Why would anything not be exposed then? You see all of me and I see all of you. That is the vulnerable expression of marital intimacy. And this is what God says. I want you to see all of who I am and experience all of me as you invite me in to experience and to know all of who you are. That nothing is hidden and nothing is put away behind password protection. That we are exposed one to another. That I intimately know you. One thing about the intimacy of marriage is it is difficult to hide who you are from the person you share your bed and your life with. 
I used to say this when my wife and I were first married, when people would ask, how is married life? How is being married? And I would say, I was like, you know, the one thing that I never thought is that like, she sees everything about me. It's like a mirror into my life and into my soul. I can't hide anything from her. I'm completely exposed in this relationship. I would say it so often that my wife would go, stop saying that when people ask about, say, it's great and I love being, why do you keep going to the weird mirror metaphor? It just that much burned into me that I can't hide anything from her. She's there, she sees it. You may know me as pastor and you may hear me preach on a stage Or you may know me as a friend and we may share life and talk or maybe we've gotten lunches or breakfast or coffee. And you may say to me at times of like, you are so patient and kind. And I can say to you, fooled you. You don't know that aspect of who I am. Kate does know that and can speak into every aspect of my life. And that's what God says to us. I want to know every aspect of your life. That we share this together, that we walk alongside one another together. And one of the dominant themes of this letter is God crying out to us that it is not enough to know him or know about his love. We have to experience his loving relationship. And we can know him as Lord and King. We can know him as shepherd and guide. We can even know him as father. But he says, no, my love is to be experienced. Not just head knowledge about what I do and who I am, but I want your heart your body and your soul to experience me as a loving being who knows you and embraces you. And third and final, it is a life-changing potency. Your marriage, that relationship can change us in ways others can't. Because of the priority of it, because of the intimacy of it, what your spouse thinks and does with you and about you has a disproportionate ability to shape you, guide you, empower you, or tear you down. That time when you said to me that I'm so patient and kind, um, words, uh, words of affirmation are not my love language. So oftentimes I get like a card or a letter and I'll be like, oh, that's really nice. And then I have to think to myself, how long before I can actually throw this away without feeling guilty about it? But if you do actions for me, it makes me feel loved and valued. And in this dynamic, I can receive, and some of you are so kind and gracious in our relationship. And you may say that, you know, you're kind and patient. But if Kate says to me, you are so kind and patient. I know it's because she's seen every aspect of me. And if she declares that, I say, well, that must really be who I am. She's experiencing the worst of me. And she says that about me. She has seen that side of me and she still declares that over me. God says, if you place our relationship as a priority, if you allow me and intimately into your life, when I speak over you, It can have the potency of changing, moving, conquering, whatever is going on in your life. As Isaiah writes it, that God says this, just as a young man commits himself to his bride, then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That's the potency God wants to speak into your life, that he rejoices over you. 
He is filled with joy that he knows you, that he made you, that you exist, that you are who you are. And he wants to empower you and fill you with that joy that we can run through fields and jump over mountains because we are loved completely. This is the relationship God wants with you. And this is the love, affection, and value that he sees in you. And the most incredible relational experiences we have. Oh, can you throw that last image up? You may have seen this meme. Normally it's a video and then someone gives the context of it. The groom seeing his wife for the first time in her wedding dress. Nowadays, because we want photos to good, we manipulate these first look situations that we don't have this kind of situation. But as a pastor, when I get to do weddings and they haven't seen each other yet, I love that moment. I've done some of your weddings and I can think of one or two of them where I started to get misty just watching you get emotional over your bride walking down. This is the image that God wants in us of this is how he feels when he sees us. This is how he feels when his community gathers together. That emotion overflows in him. Isaiah declares it. This is how he feels about his people. All right, get that guy off the screen. Relationship is like a marriage. Relationship is like a bad marriage. Hosea. 3.1, again, but we emphasize a different part this time. Then the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. God tells Hosea to marry Gomer. Her name should have been the first warning. Marry this woman who will be unfaithful to you so that you understand what my relationship with humanity has been like what my relationship with Israel has been like, what my relationship with the church has been like. Why does God say this to Hosea? Why poor Hosea? Other prophets are given words and and they're just able to live their life. Why is Hosea's whole life have to be centered around this, experientially through this? Number one, maybe it is God choosing to give redemptive love to this woman, Gomer, who's deeply broken and he uses Hosea to impact one person in her story of her life. But number two, I think most importantly, it's God saying, you cannot Hosea fully express to my people the depth of my love and what I have gone through in order to love these people until you have experienced it yourself. You need to know what I feel like, what I have been through, how loving I am by living it yourself. So Hosea marries Gomer. She is unfaithful to him. This is a repeated problem. He knew this when he married her and entered into this. At one point, she ends up becoming a literal streetwalker. She's out. She's prostituting herself to other men in the community around Hosea. She's with another lover. At one point in her darkest moment, she sells herself into sexual slavery. I don't know if maybe she's used up all her money or she just finds such little value in herself at this point that she sells herself into this dark moment. And God is speaking through Hosea, this is what humanity is like. 
the depth of my love for you, you still continually sell yourself into bondage, into sin, into slavery to your own hurts and desires. He's saying your bad marriage, Hosea, your wife's betrayal, that is exactly what I go through and have been through in history. And maybe two lessons for us as we read this. One, we do not fully grasp and understand the depth of what God goes through as a result of our sin, pride, and disobedience. Because of the cross, we think of sin as, oh, it's gone. I've done it, and whoo, it's off into space. But that every moment of betrayal and every moment of sin and destruction in our lives, even though God pours out his grace and his love, it still takes something from him and impacts him. As the author of Hebrews says, even under the new covenant and the new resurrection of Christ, every sin we continue back into is an impact of crucifixion back onto Christ again. It does not impact us in the same way as it impacts the heart of the God who made us. Number two, we do not understand how enslaved to our sins we are. And we read a book like Hosea to see the depth of how far we fall in our sin and our life. Jeremiah 4 says it quite powerfully. What are you doing, you who have plundered? Why do you dress up in beautiful clothing and you put on your gold jewelry? Why do you brighten your eyes with mascara? You are primping, will do you no good. The allies who were your lovers despise you and seek to kill you. That sin that you love so much, that sin that you engage in as a coping mechanism for when you are really stressed out, the sin that when you're upset, you just kind of let yourself go and you indulge into it because it kind of feels good to feel powerful or strong in that moment. What scripture tells us is in that moment, you are not entering into the arms of someone comforting you. You are entering into someone that hates you, that will destroy you. You are embracing your own destruction. You are embracing your own enslavement. What Hosea would challenge us with is the question, is there anything in your life that speaks to your value and meaning more than the declaration of God's love for you? Your career, making money, financial security, success, climbing the ladder, dominating the hustle. When you turn to that in your moments of vulnerability, Hosea would say, your career does not love you. Your company does not love you. Yeah, sure, they have bagels out on Mondays and there's pizza on Friday and there's a tiny little gym you can go to, but that's not love. They do not love you. The side hustle, your bank account, your investments do not love you. Push it even further, your romantic relationships, who you are dating or not dating, how they feel about you and whether they speak your love language well or not. There, there is love, but they are not what saves you. They are not your redemption and your hope. A famous golfer was once exposed as a self-addict years ago in quite dramatic fashion. 
And in that, we learned of someone we thought was incredibly disciplined and incredibly driven and incredibly talented and a role model who said, there's an aspect of my life in my sexuality that I am enslaved to and I have no control over. The depth of where I am fallen, I am totally out of control with this. As Hosea uses sexuality as its dominant metaphor, it is not a book about sexuality. It is a book about the enslavement of humanity to the sin in our heart and God's righteous work to redeem us out of it. Because then we see what God does to reconcile the relationship. It's a marriage. It's a bad marriage. How far does God go to reconcile that relationship? The point of Hosea is not to focus on Hosea's love for Gomer. I believe what Hosea would tell us is, if at the end of this book you say love wins, I would say you have missed it. God wins. God's authority and power is what saves, not love. It is his loving expression, but it is out of who he is that God's character wins. Hosea, continuing on in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, So I bought her back. Remember, she has sold herself into sexual slavery. He says, So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. In this moment, Gomer is for sale. Most likely, in their context and community, she is for sale publicly in the town center. It is likely, because she has fallen into sexual sin, that she is nude, exposed, for sale. And imagine the position of shame she is in, standing there. How, far, how have I let this got so far? Who am I anymore? What's my value? She's up for sale the bidding begins, the shame she must feel at that moment. And as the calls come in, five shekels, 10 shekels, she recognizes that one of the voices is her husband. Thank God. What is he doing? Why would he do this for me? At this point, maybe she begins to fear that he's doing this to buy her back to then punish her so that he would have control over her and can make her feel what she has done to him and made him feel. That's how we think. 10 shekels, 12, 15 shekels, five bushels of barley and a measure of wine sold. Hosea buys her back. And this is what Hosea says to her. You must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. During this time, you will not have sexual relations with anyone, not even me, and I will live with you. It's not an incredibly romantic declaration. He pays the price, Hosea, financially. He pays the price socially and societally. It's embarrassing what he's done in the public square, buying back his own wife from sexual slavery. It is embarrassing him. He's paid the price culturally and he's paid the price financially. And what it says here is he is now also paying the price emotionally. Why does he say to her, you won't have sexual relations with anyone, including myself? Because he's a real human being and he's saying, it's going to take me some time to get there. I need some emotional time to process and to heal. 
You will live in my home, but it will take us time to be husband and wife again. What Hosea is expressing is what we use in 21st century language, emotionally healthy processing. Give me time to get there. This is hard work for me, and it will take time to heal. We have a lot of work to do, but I will pay the price, and in the end, I will be yours, and you will be mine. This is the last we see of this marriage parable in Hosea. This is the last moment we see of this narrative portion. Never comes up again. And perhaps the author wants us to believe and to know that that's the last time it goes off the rails and that this deep and wonderful expression of grace and mercy, Gomer, has been able to heal and to lean into the grace of Hosea and live a loving relationship for the first time. Hosea is an image of God. Let's get that clear. This letter is an image of who our God is. Hosea was in love. Hosea was betrayed. And Hosea paid an enormous price to restore back his loving relationship. This is the God that we serve. A God who is in love with his humanity. A God who is betrayed by his humanity. And a God who pays an enormous price to restore us back. When we enter into relationships, it requires sacrificial love. To love someone requires pain. It requires the vulnerability of putting ourselves out there to be hurt. All humanity is that way. There might be maybe five or six people on this planet who are very easy to love and won't require all this of you, and they're just very kind and loving and organized in their life. If you meet that person, lock them down. You got it. Marry that person right away. That's phenomenal. The rest of us are hot messes that require sacrifice and love to be with. It takes something from us to love another person. Imagine the friend you have that calls you, not at seven when you were free and not at eight when you were still not quite decompressed. They call you at 10 p.m. and they're very upset and they're in another relationship you told them not to enter into, but it fell apart as you told them it would. And it's 10 p.m., and they're crying on the phone, and they want to talk to you, and they're asking you to come over. And they're saying, I just can't be alone right now. Can you just come over here? And you take that deep breath, and you know, if I go over there right now, I'm not getting to bed probably till like 1, 1.30. And I'm coming back, and I'm going to have less at the end of this. They, at the end of this, from me, may have some peace. And they're able to decompress and pour it on me and I receive it. But for me, this is going to take something from me. This is a sacrifice I have to do because I love this person. That is how human relationships work. That is how sinful, broken people work. That is how grace and mercy works. That is what love is. It is to put the wants and needs of another person above your own, to actively love them, not to feel something, but to give something of ourselves. 
And what God says to us, you can do it because I have done it first and foremost and for you. Hosea chapter three, verses four and five are prophetic words. They're beautiful prophetic words. They are not about Hosea's situation there in Israel. They are about the coming king and the Messiah from the line of David that is coming. It says, this shows everything we just talked about in Hosea's life, his wife's betrayal, buying her back. He says, this shows that Israel will go a long time without a king or a prince and without sacrifices, sacred pillars, priests, or even idols. But afterward... The people will return and devote themselves to the Lord their God and to David's descendant, their king. And in the last days, they will tremble in awe of the Lord and his goodness. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus says of himself, Do wedding guests mourn the celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom of humanity. He says, this is the groom we've been looking for. This is the Hosea. This is the God to Israel. Jesus Christ is how far God would go to pay for us and bring us back into his loving embrace not 15 shekels, a bushel of barley, and some wine, but the very life of his son, that he would buy back wayward, adulterous, sinful people into his loving embrace. If you bow your heads with me. This morning, I want to give an opportunity, if you are in the room, and you can't say that you know Jesus personally, that you can't say that you have experienced God's love, I want to give you an opportunity today to invite his loving presence that you may experience how deep, how wide, how high the love of God is in Christ Jesus, his son. Allow me to pray this over there with you. Pray it out with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, make this a moment of recommittal. That Jesus, I believe that you are God put on flesh. That you lived and walked among us as a perfect person. You loved, you gave, you showed grace and mercy and forgiveness. And instead of receiving blessing, you received my judgment. And you died on a cross in our place for our sin. You were buried in the ground. And on the third day, you conquered sin and death, resurrected now and for eternity. And by the price you paid on the cross, we are bought back to the Father and invited into that loving marriage again. Jesus, you gave your life for me. In this moment, I give my life to you. In your name. Amen. If you stand with me, if you can, all over the room. As we close out this morning in one final song of worship, I do want to invite you forward. 
We have the prayer walls from our worship night on Friday to my right and to my left. I invite you to come forward, pray along with what people have already prayed about God's beauty and grace. Our prayer team will be up here. We would love to pray with you, walk this journey with you. And the altars are open. If we want to take a step this morning, as I close out in prayer, and when I say amen, that is your trigger, your moment to respond, to say to God, I want to be in loving relationship with you. I want to experience you. Many times in church, and I know I'm this kind of a preacher, that I give you a sermon that feels sort of like a teaching lesson and you leave this room and you go, that was a good thing to hear. But I don't want to miss in this series that God is calling us to experience him. And many of the ways we experience God is when we take a step of faith and we posture ourselves physically around an altar space or with another to pray for us. And we say, God, will I experience you in this moment? May your spirit come and meet with me and may I feel your love. May I recognize your presence on me. And I want us to take a moment and invite ourselves to experience his love in our bodies, in our minds, and in our souls. If you'll pray with me, and when I say amen, these altars are open, the team will lead us, and may we respond to God's loving embrace. Lord, we thank you that you love us as a bridegroom loves his bride. And even as we respond to you this morning, may we have that image in our head of the groom looking at his bride walking down. We may feel that we are ugly and unworthy of love. We may have lived these last years and feel like the church is ugly and unworthy of Christ's love. But may we know right now beyond a shadow of doubt that that is not how you see us that you see us as beautiful and worthy of love and that you buy us back. May we lean into your loving presence this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.